to another episode of Steve's Speed Shop, brought to you by WarrantyWise, the UK's best warranty provider. Get a quote from them today at warrantywise.co.uk. We're brought to you by Mini Sports, specialising in the classic Mini since 1967. And we're brought to you by West Coast Motorcycles. They sell Harley-Davidson's, lots of them, and very lovely they are too. Find them on Facebook at West Coast Motorcycles. Joel Mutton is a man who has sold many thousands of motorcars in his career and owned many hundreds of motorcars himself. Say that his tastes are eclectic is something of an understatement. Like me, his collection is influenced by cars that he's seen on television, in films and in advertising. He is an obsessive student of popular culture, particularly from the 1970s. He's a mate of mine, as of most people that come on this show. He's a very interesting guy. My guest this week is Joel Mutton. I've seen a great picture of you with the car that you consider to be your first car. It was well before you were legally able to drive. Right. Tell, tell us about that one. Um, it's, well, the, I think you're talking about the, the Mark 1 Jaguar. Yeah. Or as they were called later on, the 2.4 Jaguar. Uh, my dad took it in park exchange against the Triumph for Tess in about 19... Well, 77. Um, I think it was about £125. And this car was in superb condition. It had been owned by some old captain down in Eastbourne or something. Um, considering it lived near the sea, it was still all intact. Um, the guy that park exchanged it was quite a youngish short chap that worked at the works here, and he just fancied this Triumph for Tess, and it was like £125 part exchange and my father thought hang on a minute this, this is a nice little car we keep hold of this one and then we went on to do the uh, Jaguar Concourses and this is sort of before the old blank check restoration sort of came in so it was quite an original car uh, it wasn't all brand new you know someone hadn't just been up to the local David Manners or something and bought all the bits this was an original car um, I remember going back at the time and, and it, I came second at Woburn in a Jaguar Concourse. There was never much competition because the Mark 1s at that particular time, and it's all changed now, obviously, with the Mike Hawthorne halo and everything, they weren't really loved. Everyone was bonkers on Mark 2s. But it's funny, it's gone full circle. People aren't so bonkers on Mark 2s now. It's all Mark 1s that they want, which is a bit... Because the Mark 1, obviously, you can hardly see out of them with the heavy moulded windows, and they literally had all sort of rotted away with the first monocot construction and everything. But it came second at Woburn, and then I think it came about third at um, Blenheim Palace in these Jaguar um, concourses and I used to go up to collect the trophy and he'd think, where, where the hell is he? And I'd look down and see this little lad with his red trousers on eagerly picking up the little trophy that he'd given me, which was, you know, it was great fun and it was great at my dad sort of letting me have all the, the glory and everything of it because, I mean, it was my car. I mean, my father, bless him, he loves cars but he never went sort of mad like I did on them. I mean, he, he had an XK120 when he was 19 in 1959, which he had on finance, I think it was £300 or £10 down, or sort of £10 a month sort of thing, which was quite flash back in that era. Well, that was revolutionary. I mean, yeah. pe- people talk to me about the history of, of British bikes, and I think, and they say, you know, what was the most important um, development? And I think there were two... 
there were two really important developments. One, Edward Turner's speed twin. When he when when one of the major British manufacturers yeah. recognised that the ordinary motorcyclist wanted something better. They wanted something that had good performance and that looked great, and that yeah. was the speed twin. And he had to fight management. They wanted to build a simple, black-painted, no-chrome, single-cylinder motorcycle. They thought, the working man doesn't want 90 miles per hour. That's ridiculous. He doesn't yeah. want bright red paintwork and chromium plating. Yes, he bloody well did. Yeah. But the other thing that people wanted was higher purchase because and, and the introduction of higher purchase yeah. in the 50s completely changed the British market when it came to cars and bikes. And they were, they, they were yes, they were, I, you know, I've had to learn this like, yeah. like anybody else and I'm, and I'm still fascinated with it. They deliberately made it very hard for British people to buy a new car or motorcycle because we were so bankrupt by the... And it was from that the, old mentality, wasn't from it? The you war. can't afford it, you can't have it. Yeah, if you can't afford it, you can't yeah. have it. But You've higher, got to save up for that, lad. Higher purchase changed yeah. it. And the same way that enabled a lot of the guys who I know, and some of whom still ride to this yeah. day, to buy a Triumph Bonneville or a 110 or a Royal Enfield Constellation or a BSA Gold Star, whatever yeah. it was, they I put mean, £10 down and paid weekly on, on the book. It was Mike Howard's father that sort of revolutionised it all. Kings of Oxford. Yeah, I think he was the biggest motorcycle distributor in Europe with the S finance. Stan Halewood's story Stan Halewood, yeah. is well, almost as interesting as his son yeah. Mike's. Stan Halewood was a minor and a rugby league star was he? who broke his leg down the mine, had to stop playing rugby league and had to stop mining. He went to Kings, wow. of Kings of Oxford, which was the largest motorcycle dealership in the UK, like a department store, huge dealership. Yeah. I'm sure you remember it. My grandfather installed his swimming pool up at Balls Hill when he lived up there, which well, back well, in the 50s or 40s, I think. Stan yeah. went there as an employee and worked on commission only to begin with, selling Did motorbikes. He started there as an He's, employee, yeah. Stan Hillwood was the... Was the, the there were three men who were hugely influential in the life and career of Mike Hillwood, who I still think is the greatest, not just British motorcycle racer, but the greatest motorcycle exactly. racer who's ever lived. And that's 40 years ago this year that he sadly died. Exactly. And, and sadly, Pauline, his, his widow, she yeah, died she several just, weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. she just died. Friend but of there, very close, a good friend of hers, yeah. But there are three people who I think were massively influential in Mike's life. Count Augusta, the, the owner of Envy Augusta. Yeah. Soshihiro Honda, who was an amazing man. Why, why there hasn't been a movie about his life, I have no idea. He was one of the outstanding individuals of the 20th century. Yeah. He went from working on a dirt floor blacksmith shop to being the largest manufacturer of internal combustion engines yeah. in the world in his lifetime. Really, a yeah. remarkable man. And the other guy that, that forged Mike's career was his, was his father. Sammy Miller, who's an Irish motorcycle racer, told me a story about Mike Hillwood turning yeah. up for his first motorbike race and his dad's chauffeur-driven Bentley. And at that time, yeah. motorcycle racers were, they were like footballers and boxers. They were from the tough streets of Manchester or yeah. Bel Belfast or Birmingham or whatever. Mike turns up, privately educated, yeah, Pangborn so College. Cool, wasn't it? But he, it was the thing that Sammy said. While Mike was racing, the chauffeur sold tyres, oil and gloves and helmets from the boot of the oh, Bentley. <laughs> Because oh, above all, Stan was a businessman. Yeah. 
very so, much so. I remember go walking down that um, Park End Street oh, about 30 years ago and the lovely frosted glass windows running along the tops of the, um, of the, um, of the showrooms with the old pictures of the Morgans, three-wheelers, mm. and the motorcycles coming out of the lovely sunburst frosted glass was still there. And I was like, oh, God, I'd love to get my hands on them, but they vanished. But uh, I suppose the Turner guy with the BSA, was that the same Turner that did the V8 engine in the 250 Daimler? Yeah, the Daimler Dart. He was with its hemispherical yeah, heads. Yeah, 250 V8 saloon, Ed, yeah. Edward Turner was the same guy. And his, his Incredible, story, isn't it? To, his, to straddle both, Yeah, you know, genres. Well, it, and his story is emblematic of the way that British, the British motor industry went if people are interested in that sort of thing. And if they're listening, William Lyon squashed the car because it was faster than the Mark II, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But, but, but here's we'll the thing. get rid of that one. <laughs> Edward Turner's story is the story that is repeated so often and the yeah. reason why there isn't really a British motor industri- industry today, although there kind of is, but it's all specialist stuff and most of the companies are, yeah. are foreign-owned. Men who were in their youth bold and adventurous and did and took risks became the managers yeah. who would then stymie the same sort of thing it's from their employees. Edward as a young man was the guy who thought that the working man should have a 90 mile per hour motorcycle that was amaranth red or, or you know, that, and had yeah. chromium plated. And he was the guy who, when other, em, other younger employees, when he was running the show, they came and said, We want to build the fastest street bike in the world, the Triumph Bonneville. Mm. And we want to, and, and people say, Oh, other bikes had a higher top speed. He, they might have had a higher top speed, but on a proper road, they, they couldn't match a Bonnie. Really? Uh, but, Edward Turner was then the guy who said, no, 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 this is too... It, 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 it's, you know, you shouldn't let those guys be in charge because they they inevitably become, as the years goes, go by, more conservative, more resistant to yeah. change and a more sort of blinkered attitude, you know, think, yeah. thinking, yeah, yeah, we've been selling all these bikes or these cars for years and years. Of course the Americans will keep buying them. Of course the, world, the Commonwealth will keep buying these cars. There's no need to improve them. There's no need to make them better. Yeah. I mean, look at that Jag. Did you ever get to drive it on the road, that Mark one? Um, I used it very briefly back in the late 80s, but to be honest with you, I didn't use it very much. I mean, I was sort of... I've still got the car, um, but I was sort of into, I, I got bonkers on the Jensen Interceptor. Um, it's funny, there was one, I, saw, I don't know whether you've seen the video or not, but Johnny, is it Johnny Carper, the, the Johnny... Johnny Smith from uh, from Channel Fifth 5, Gear. Fifth Gear, that guy, it's yeah, yeah. really funny, he, he did a video um, last week at an old sort of disused scrapyard at some unknown location. And the highlight of this video um, that he sort of pushed the video with was a roof of an interceptor surrounded by stinging nettles and God knows what and looking very forlorn. And some, when I saw this video come up on Friday, I had some sort of sixth sense. I thought, that looks like the one that I used to see in Oxford on the Iffley Road in about 1981. Anyway, watch the video. Great video. Lots of interesting stuff in the scrapyard. You know, like all, all 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, even 90s stuff. Anyway, they get round to the Jensen. There it is. Surrounded in stinging nettles, they get round the back. I see the registration number. 
Oh, my God, that's only the car that got me into the interceptors. I go through my archive of photographs, which you can imagine, before digital came along, it's pretty big. There's the car. That's the same car that they've just found in, in the scrapyard in Oxford, and that was the car that got me into the interceptors. Even as 11 years old, I was oh, my God, these are the cars to have. I bought my Mark II for a friend of my father's. I paid him £500. It was all the money that I had in the world that I made by selling cans of coke, chocolate bars, gardening gloves, hacksaw blades and stuff at school. Don't ask. <laughs> then, I start, then I bought a job lot of slightly faulty cigarette lighters and gassed them all up. One of the young lads accidentally took his eyebrows off in the reading room. And that's when the brakes got put on it all. But by then I had three good years of selling. <laughs> Uh, and there she is, and that's quite amusing because that I was really the Mark One Jag, never couldn't really ever get excited about them. Really, I can't really even now. I mean, I had a big, I had a, I had thirty five classic cars, and last year I got rid of about ten because the storage at thousand pound a month was getting a bit, a bit much. Sorry if you say it quickly. Um, and everyone said there was like a, a poll. They were like, oh, Joe, you can't get rid of the Mark One. I'm, I'm looking back. I'm glad I didn't. It did, it did stay. It was just sort of surplus stuff that went that I sort oddities that have sort of collected over time, which is still a bit hurtful, but anyway. Um, still at the Interceptor, obviously, and it was amazing the fact that that was the one that Johnny found last week in this sort of disused scrapyard, mm. which is all a dream for all of us wandering around those. I mean, you can you cast your mind back to the 70s and 80s when you're a little nipper, you know, sitting in some old triumph air or wiggling the steering wheel left to right, you know, <laughs> covered in bracken and God knows what. I mean, it was just yeah, that but, was the magical stuff, wasn't it, finding an old child in Scrapyard? Here's the thing. No. No, no. mate. This is where you're this is where you're an oddity. And, oh, yeah, and this an oddity, is one yeah. of the reasons why we're mates and I asked you to be on the show. Yeah. Young it's, men it's did not enthusiast who doesn't sit well with being a car dealer. Joel. Young right. men did not dream of the Jensen Interceptor. Look at look at the owners of inter famous owners of in interceptors. Yeah. Sir Matt Busby, Eric Morecambe, yeah. Mike and Bernie Winters. And I've got Bernie's Silver Spur. Have you? Father bought it. Bought, didn't buy hold it on, hold on. We yeah. should ex we should explain who Mike and yeah. Bernie Winters were because exactly. not everyone's an age, haven't you? Because bless him, he's been dead thirty years. Rest in peace. Yeah, I was going to say not everybody's as old as us, and not everybody's as as British as us. No. So Mike and Bernie Winters were like a a a, a cut price Morecambe and Wise. Nice way of describing them. Yeah. yeah. And when one of them wanted to retire, the other one replaced him with a Saint Bernard. That's the one. Right. So he had a silver. He would have a silver shadow because all all people who made it in light entertainment, from Jimmy Tarbuck with his COM1C registration yeah. number, had a shadow. And so obviously he had a shadow. But now, but now you've got it. Is is it a good shadow? Well, it's actually a spur. A spur, um, right? He bought it. Um, he's obviously very shrewd. He bought it a year old. Let someone else suffer the depreciation. It was bought originally. Uh, when it was new in 82 by the boss of Barclay Holmes, who, who sadly died last week, age 72. So this car's 40 years old nearly. So he's quite a young man when he bought it, 30-odd years old. I think he was self-made man, the boss of Barclay Holmes. Anyway, Bernie bought it a year old. Um, my father purchased it at British Car Auctions in 90, and it was just before Bernie sadly died of stomach cancer. Um, but that was Bernie's car then for seven years, right up until he's, his passing and in his autobiography one day at a time there's a lovely picture of him outside the Rolls Works and I spoke to a guy 
at the Rolls at the Rolls factory when I went up in No Two. Well, by, by then it was Bentley, and he said he can remember one Saturday morning Bernie turning up with the dog, walking down <laughs> walking down the track, and they made a cover because a lot of people always said to me, you know, is there any teeth marks? No teeth marks because the factory made him a cover for. Snorbits or snorkels, as a friend of mine, Lionel, accidentally calls the dog sometimes. Is that the dog that old snorkels used to? Is that the car? Is that the rolls that Bernie Winters and snorkels used to go around? I I don't like to correct him. It always amuses me, snorkels. I think that was a banana split, but you're sort of in the right direction sort of thing. It was a bit bonkers. If I'd have been Mike Winters, the the brother who retired from the double act, and my, my brother chose to replace me with a dog... I, I wouldn't know whether to think that was a good thing or a bad thing. And the funny thing is, my interceptor, when I researched the history quite a few years later, you could get all the chassis stuff from um, the factory. I think Martin Robe is the whole of history now. You get all these wonderful um, correspondence between the, the, you know, the disgruntled owners and, and Jensen Works. I mean, they were rusting practically from the minute they rolled out, bless them. Obviously, nobody was into rust-proofing in those days and everything rusted. Um, Everything, Joel. I mean, these things were like six or seven thousand pounds. I mean, you can imagine a semi around <laughs> semi around here. Careful. Probably about yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is this is after midnight, isn't it? Um, you could buy a semi-detached house around here for about four or five thousand quid. I mean, these cars were dearer than sort of semi-detached houses, you know. Uh, there's some wonderful correspondence about oh, I've just purchased this Jensen Interceptor and my brakes have failed on you know on the M1. But it turned out this one was the 69 Motor Show car, the one that I bought. And I was born in 69, so it's quite nice. But it was also, it was 11, 12 chassis numbers after Bernie Winters, Mark, flag red Mark II. He had the first Mark II off the line. Wow. So just another little bit of nonsense. But, you know, it's what makes me tick, silliness like this. I, um, a few months ago, I was idly browsing, um, the internet's most popular and frustrating internet auction site. And I spotted a car that was just up the road from me. I didn't need another car. The last thing I needed was another car. I needed to get get rid of a few cars. But a tiny bit of research uncovered the fact that it was the Earl's Court show car. It was the first Rover P6B. It It was the first V8-engined P6. And it was in Bury, Lancashire, my hometown, just up the road from where I live now in Manchester. And it belonged to a bloke who had dragged it out of the back of a dentist surgery in South Manchester <laughs> and stuck it on eBay. The auction had about two hours to run. I called him and tried to act casual. You know, like, oh, I'm slightly interested. Yeah, my mom and, hours to go, yeah. I said, my mum and dad live in Bury. I told him which part of town. I was thinking of popping up to see them today. I might... I might have a look at the car. Is that okay? Yeah. He said, yeah, yeah. I said, okay, well, if I'm coming by, I'll knock on your door. When I got there, he was fully prepped. He had somebody to take a picture of me and him next to the car. Oh, it was, yeah. He was fully prepped in that time. Something had alerted him. Yeah, and it's that Steve Berry. Oh, not the other one. So yeah. as soon as I left, I checked the listing, and the listing had been added to or there was, a, there was new stuff on there or whatever. I don't know how he'd done it because I don't think he could revise the listing in the last couple of hours. Or he pulled it or something. He, he'd sort of modified it to a buy-it-now thing or something oh, like right. that. Oh, and he'd right. put, hey, everyone, I've just found out that this, <laughs> that this car yeah. is the Earl's Court show car. 
and uh, it was white with red leather. And he the, didn't know it was, no? No, uh, sadly, I alert my interest alerted him. I should have just I should have just lurked until the last second, well, the last few seconds of the interview. But here's the thing: the the interior was in great condition, but I've rarely seen. You were talking about rust on the interceptor. I've yeah. rarely seen rot like that in a motor car. Oh, rarely seen it. The doors it, were aluminium on those, aren't they? Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. There were there were aluminium parts. I think the wings were aluminium as well. Yeah, um, they were in everything that was steel was just was gone. Oh, was gone. I mean, just just not there. So you, you you start to think to yourself, even if I did the and and here's the thing to me, it's like yeah. So it's the first it's the first P six V eight. So yeah. so what? It's still a P six V eight. So it's it's not. They are cruisers, aren't they? They're, they're kind of... Our doctor had a P6 V8, Dr. Yeah. Smalley, and he smoked a pipe and he wore tweed jackets and stout brogues and he drove a forest green Rover C- P6B, so it had the Buick V8. You know, it's like... Have I think, you seen the film Girl with a Pistol, 1968? Girl with a Pistol? Yeah. No, no, but I want to. Not, uh, Monica Vitti's in it, who was in... Um, oh, Christ, that film with the E-Type. Monica uh, Vitti was modesty. Danger Diabolic. She was Modesty Blaze, wasn't she? Yeah, that's Monica it. Monica Vitti. Yeah, it was yeah. Um, Dirk Bogard, yeah. yeah. Um, there was a film, it was on Talking Pictures, other television channels that are available. Uh, not as good as this one, though. No. A few weeks ago, and what's his name? It's Stanley Baker's in it. It's not Stanley Baxter, so you always have to be careful you don't muddle them up. Joel, that's... I'm looking through a window at the, the clock tower of the building that Stanley Baxter. Stanley Baker yeah, no, yeah. has the climactic fight in Hell is a City, which I reckon is the best British noir. The I'll best. Have to check that one out. Oh, it's a fantastic film. Yeah, and it's full of. Unfortunately, it's it's full of Wolseleys. So a, ah. a certain sort of person, like our our mutual friend Nick yeah. Larkin, who I'm trying to get to come on the show, yeah. would get very excited. Master Roberts has he been on yet? Well, we, here's the thing. You and I are friends. So I just mentioned that film, Hell is a City, Stanley, yeah. Stanley Baker. It's set in Manchester. It's very gritty. The acting's great. The script is great. It's, it's the best British attempt at a Hollywood Raymond Chandler, you know, Philip Marlowe type noir, noirish thing, movie. That's that overused word now, yeah. But here's the thing. You and I have a lot of friends who have a huge a great love of the British cars from that era. And I have, and yet neither of us, neither of us has much love at all for, for what was frankly, the motoring equivalent of gruel. It It was just, you know, like a, a singer gazelle or something. It's, you know, Vauxhall Victor or something like that. It's, it's kind of, I, I think old car nostalgia there are basically two kinds. People who want what Dad had and people who want what Dad could never possibly yeah. could never. Yeah, possibly when you were sat in the back it. of the walls and you saw the Jensen flying by on the M1. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think you That's and I... Well, the I, final I, seat there. Yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to speak, speak for you, Joel, because I think your, your dad did have these cars. He did. He never had a Jensen, which always sort of slightly knocked me, but I can, after buying one and sort of only one for years, I can see why he didn't. You know, he was always a Jaguar man. I mean, they had their problems in the seventies, but obviously they got better over time. My grandfather was a, was a, was a big Jaguar man and had a Triumph Vitesse. Did so, he? Yeah, he had he had a Vitesse. It was white, old English white with red leather, and uh, great Getting car. Getting back to the old pistol again, if we may. We, Girl with a pistol. F- great, f- feel free, Joe. Great film. 
Yeah. Absolutely bonkers. Don't even attempt to sort of try and work the plot out. I only caught up with this little gem a couple of weeks ago. 1968, Stanley Baker. Baker, Not Baxter, we've already got that clear. We should explain very quickly, Stanley Baxter was a Scottish man who used to appear on television at Christmas time and loved to put our dress on. He did a better job of the Queen than the Queen does of herself. Yeah. Bless him. But Stanley Baker... Stanley Baker, yeah, Stanley Baker, who isn't with us, he died ridiculously young. He died sadly in 1984 in Malaga. Stanley Baker was the guy who was in Zulu. Yeah, and and the Howl Drivers. And the Howl Drivers, which again is a great It's just a a, a line-up to dream for, isn't it? What a great film that is. I know. Do you think it was sped up in places, Steve? Do you think they sped it up a little bit? Or were they really that fast, those old lorries? No, I don't think those Bedford, ex-army <laughs> Bedfords were quite that fast, Joel. Girl with a pistol. Yeah, let's get back to that again. Tony Booth's in it. I met, hold on. I met Tony Booth on a train. We were, in, we were on a train, and for some reason, they'd upgraded us to first class. I don't know why. Really? Yeah, the I o- wonder. The only, people, the only people in the carriage... Were me and Tony Booth, oh, and I thought, this, yeah. "Hold on, what a dream. hold on, the Scouse Git." Right? Yeah. Now, so again, some people will know what that means. Someone. Yeah. So I thought, I've got to talk to him, but how do I, how do I open the conversation? And I thought, great, I know something, I know something that will perhaps interest him. And I said to him, "Do you know what I said to him, Joel? I'll tell you what I said to him. I said, yeah. I was born in the same hospital as Cherie." In the oh, same, in the same, yeah. She was born. Yeah. Have a request. Sherry Booth, who of course became Sherry Blair. That's it. My auntie used to work with her on the makeup counter in Oxford. And she was born. Like you do. She was born in Fairfield Hospital in Bury, Lancashire. Oh, was she? This, yes, yeah, she was the same oh, year wow. as I was. And so he was hooked straight away. We started talking, and I stayed away from the kind of because he's he had a he, he had a uh, an interest in life, didn't he? Not perhaps. Yeah, I mean, the most he was, successful. He was, but he was, yeah, he was quite an interesting character, wasn't he? Bloody an good actor. And then he got sort of, well, he wasn't involved. Well, he was, was he tied up with the oldie magazine or something? I don't know. I know he's sort of all over the place. And um, a political, a very political man, of yeah. course, as well. So we talked a bit about politics, not too much. No, exactly. Did, yeah. Didn't show him the picture <laughs> of me and Boris. <laughs> oh, Boris. <laughs> Got a great picture of me with Boris Johnson. Oh, Christ. The thing is, there's a picture of me with Boris Johnson, and I, yeah. I, I, I basically use oh, it... Boris Yeltsin, then. To, to, not Boris Yeltsin, That'd Boris Johnson. Dave Richards. He'd have a picture with Boris Yeltsin. He would. He's a friend of ours. He's very keen <laughs> all, all things Soviet. All with his gear on. So I, show, I can picture I, it now. I showed people a picture of me and Boris Johnson, basically to upset them. But just because I'm stood next to Boris Johnson doesn't mean that I am politically aligned with him. Oh. A pal of mine's got a picture of himself with Saddam Hussein, right? Do you know, he's got a picture of himself from Saddam Hussein because in the mid-'80s, the World Ballooning Championships were held in Iraq because Iraq oh, is it? a... Yeah, because it's a great place to fly mm-hmm. hot air balloons. It's perfect. Yeah. And Saddam Hussein was then the Minister of Sports. And like he said, he just because... Nice suits on, I know that. Yeah. Moving on. Yeah. Girl with a pistol. Get back to Girl with a pistol again. <laughs> Tony Booth, Monica Vitti. Yeah. Suddenly, she's in Italy. Suddenly, she finds herself at the station in Princess Station. I'm not sure. I'm not very good I'm going up the map, but uh, in Edinburgh. And next minute, she's in a lovely scene. She winds up in Sheffield, 1968 Sheffield. Wow. 
Tony Boo stood by the side of the street tinkering with a, a yellow, primrose yellow E-type. Suddenly they go for a spin round 68 Sheffield. Some lovely old shots of the old steel works and this that and the other. He's spinning this uh, E-type round a football field in and out of the goalposts and spinning handbrake turn. In the next scene he drops it off at the bot to, to the gate, the, the reception gate, one of these big steel companies. Tosses the keys to the bloke on uh, on reception. Said, "Oh, service your boss's car." <laughs> He's obviously just skidded the nuts out of it. Then we go to another scene, and there's um, oh, what's that bloke? Um, oh, I can't remember his name. He was in um, uh, Coronation Street. I never really watched soaps. Go on. But great, great movie. And then Stanley Baker arrives, and he's driving a P6. What my favourite shot of a car in and a he film? He looks good in it as well. He rocks it well. I'm going to ask you about your uh, your favourite shot. Just a shot, a short one scene is at the end of a movie that you'll know. Room at the top. Yeah. Lawrence Harvey is uh, an ambitious young executive within this British manufacturing company based in the north of England. When we had a manufacturing industry yeah. in the north of England, not that long ago. Yeah. And by hook or by crook... He manages to climb the greasy pole. I'm mixing everything up there, but people know what I mean. Yeah. And the final shot is an amazing crane shot of him having secured his position at the head of the company. He comes out of this huge Victorian mill into a cobbled courtyard, and the crane shot goes up and up and up, and he gets into his brand-new Maserati. That's it, Maserati, And it's yeah. just my... And it says everything. It says... He's made it. Yeah. He has made it. It's the mid-60s. Wow. He's a young guy on the move, and he's on the move yeah. in this fabulous Maserati. It's in black and white. It looks better in black and white than it would do in yeah. colour. And it's it's one of those things in cinema where a shot of a car, a motor vehicle, is used to give you the information that you need. It. On there's the way a, up. There's a huge amount of meaning in that car. It's like... Yeah, he's made it. He's he's and he's not stopping. He's no. not stopping here, this man. He's going. There's room at the top, and he's making room at the top. And it's 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 great, isn't it? How cars. Oh, and what a wonderful actor he was. Who sadly died very young. Didn't Lawrence he? Harvey. Yeah, yeah. Because he was married to Margaret Leighton, wasn't it? At one time, the sort of quite famous actress. So she was very big in the sixties, I think. Well, here's the she problem. She was in the Winslow Boy, wasn't she? Yeah. Here's the problem, yeah. Joel, with all those guys dying so young, and my my hero, Barry Sheen. Yeah. Cigarettes, mate. I met Barry because Barry had the first 928S in the UK. Wow. In 1982. I actually met him in, in the 90s. And I had a lovely picture that was taken the day he picked the car up at Malton. The, the early 928s for me were and the he best. he signed it for me, but sadly I never got a picture with him. But I've got a lovely signature. And um, That car? Quite in, quite, quite in awe of it. But obviously no selfies in them days. So, yeah. Yeah, that car... Never got better than the very first ones. Yeah, I had an early one. I had a 79928 in 91. Did it have the... They were 20 grand new, big them up for like five grand. Yeah, did it have the um, op-art interior? Yeah, it had the old Pasha and it had the telephone dials and everything. No spoilers, totally just that lovely moulded body, which is funny, I'm just reading Barry Wills, who was um, instrumental in getting the uh, DeLorean... um, up and running. Barry has been a great guest on this very a lovely show. Lovely gentleman. Just reading his new book as well. I'm doing both his books at the moment. I'm literally on the on the passage at the moment, 
with um, how they designed the front and rear bumpers. And the front and rear bumpers on the DeLorean were made by the same company that made the polyurethane bumpers on the 928. Why do you... I, I, I'm writing about the 928 at the moment. I'm writing, yeah. I'm writing a piece for Classic Car Weekly about... You the great... can't beat a bit of polyurethane in your life, kid. Well, it, it's interesting how <laughs> materials... Because think about it, carbon fibre. Yeah. Why... why there's, there's a universal belief amongst the petrolhead community that carbon fibre is only ever a good thing. But it's brittle, it's, it's vulnerable to damage. There's, yeah. there's all kinds of... A, a pal of mine has just swapped his bicycle, his road bicycle, for a carbon fibre frame bicycle, and he instantly wants to sell it because he said it's horrifically uncomfortable. It's like, oh you God. know... We will it, never believe it. Um, this is this sort of... This is a bit bonkers. because I've never, ever had a new car in my life. Wow. Wow. I've always, you know, been in the motor train, motor train mentality, only idiots buy new cars. You know, you always wait till the second so you save all the money. Well, a year ago, in my infinite wisdom, I ordered a new Ferrari F8. Well, there's no way of saying that without selling like a big-headed twat, but I have, and here we go. Today, when you go to the showroom to sort of put in your order, and you look, I went in that showroom, I thought, I'm just going to, if there's only such thing as a basic one, I'm just going to order a basic one, red, black leather, job done. You sit in that chair and with your old coffee in your hand, and they put it on a big screen, and you can't help ordering the carbon <laughs> fibre. I even spoke to um, Peter Stevens, who designed the McLaren F1. I mean, it is really just an adornment, really. It's not like the thing's made out of it, like a McLaren, you know, one of the new McLarens. Anyway, I started pressing the buttons. I bumped into a mutual friend of ours today at the recently opened coffee bar of Cagney's, um, young Stuart Talbot. Yes. And ex- I got me an app excellent, out from the Ferrari app. And I'm not, this is, I know it's all a bit sort of silly and this, you know, it's not all about old cars and things, but I sat there with Stuart and I looked at how much carbon fibre I'd ordered on this car. And to be honest, Stuart, I'm a bit scared. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the story of that. But where were we? We were talking about we got onto carbon fibre. We we did get onto carbon fibre. Carbon fibre on that car. I was I was just thinking, is the it's the twenty first century equivalent of chrome. Yeah, it's just it's doing the same job as chrome. It's not structural. I know it's it, ridiculous, really. But, but when it, you sat there with that big old screen on, they're pressing the buttons. You're like, oh, dear. At any rate, I'll keep you posted on that one. Because obviously, with the factory, the Ferrari factory being shut for about four months with all this terrible business that's going on in the world at the moment. So there's obviously bigger issues to worry about. But it's, um, well, obviously, none of us foresee what, foresaw what was going to happen at the moment, thank God. But uh, so everybody's safe and well, I suppose. Well, yeah, and I think a lot of people, and I'm wondering if you have, have used the, the months of lockdown to, to finish long-standing projects. There's been lots of tidying up done. Lots. I have got literally thousands of car magazines. I've, co- I've collected lovingly every issue of every magazine I've purchased since 1975. Plus, my dad went to the MG Works when they closed in 1980, sadly. Um, I think it was for £10, he purchased some auto car and motor magazines for his little lad, me. Oh, that'd be nice. We'd put them in the boot. No. They needed a transit van. It was every issue of auto car and motor from about 19... 19- 48 up to 1980 so i've still obviously got them all now it was a wonderful reference though but um that's well, what i mean tidying a lot of that um it's all a bit anoraki really no but, it is the thing joel and i've been reading books 
Yeah. Cover to cover. I've actually read Barry. I'm on Barry Wills' at the moment. I've just read Tom Hartley's book, which is fantastic. Basically, that is the manual for how not to be a car dealer. Tom used to buy them and sell them. I sort of lost the plot somewhere along the line. I used to buy them and keep them. <laughs> That's why Tom's up there and I'm not up there. Um, another great autobiography. Another um, one of your fellow DJs, Timmy Mallet. What a great book that is. He went, wow. he'd done the Santiago comp. His, his brother um, sadly died recently. He was um, Down syndrome. He was about 62. And when he was clearing his flat out, he found all the little labels that you put when he was a little kid, your mum used to iron your name in, in, in your jacket at yeah. school. Well, mine did. From... <laughs> um, and he he's bought a little e-bike called Timmy Mallet and gone all the way to Santiago, done the old pilgrim trail wow. with his e-bike, dropping his brother's little name tags off in different churches and things along the way. And what a fantastic book it is. I thoroughly recommend it to anybody. Well, here's the thing that you, you were just saying about those. One man. of your fellow DJs. Well, we started in Oxford, actually, Timmy on the tranny. Well, Joel, I'm I'm on Portland Street in Manchester. Teeny weeny, teeny weeny. Yeah. yeah. I'm on Portland Street. Oh, uh, yeah. Portland Street in Manchester. And if I could, uh, perfectly fine. If I come out of the door here and turn left and walk one and a half blocks, Piccadilly Radio, would, which, is, yeah. which is where Timmy Mallet became the uh, the nationally recognised. Do you think, would you Fantastic say. Fantastic book. Would you say National Treasure? He's, yes, he's a National Treasure, so. isn't he? He's, he's, he's got to that level now where he's a... Do, do you know what I mean? He's, there was obviously a time out, Timmy Mallet, that was a bit naff, but I think he's, he has become a national treasure now, yeah. And he's a very good painter. If you go on yeah. his website, he has a live webcam. He's doing these beautiful oil paintings now, which actually go in galleries and make you know, substantial amounts of money. You know? What you were saying about, about those magazines, and I often see people on social media, and they'll post on social media saying, does anybody want all these copies of Autocar and Motor Magazine or yeah. Motorsport? Or they're going to the tip, yeah. and I think a lot of people would think, oh, "I just send them to the tip." We do everything's yeah. everything's online. No, it's not online. No. And here's the said to me years ago, it's, it's not got online. The word "classic" in the title, except for supercar classics, which is a fantastic magazine. It's not worth saving. Um, but old stuff like fast lane, performance car, motor, auto car, car stuff that was actually done of its period is a lot more interesting than old. Classic magazines, that's what, but I still say them all personally, but I remember somebody saying to me that ages ago. Another book that I just read was, um, sorry, I'm not on commission with these characters, Peter Dron's book, Tony Dron's brother, yeah. who's editor of um, Fast Lane magazine. That's been a good read as well. What's your favourite car book? Favourite car book of all time? It's got to be, my favourite book of all time is the Alan Clark Diaries. Yeah. <laughs> that he did in 91. And a, and a, motor, a motoring journalist as the well as other things. Why in 02 I bought a Bentley Continental R, you know, the big coupe yeah. one. They were like mega bucks new. They were like 200,000 new. I think I paid about 50 for it in 02. But I bought it off of Warren Clark, who was in Clockwork Orange. And obviously, well, one of the Droogs. So I well, got the actual Droog Continental. Joel. More blank expressions. What's this man on about? I, no, I go into the Copthorne Hotel in Birmingham in the early 2000s, go straight into the bar. I'd had a long day. I'd had a long week. Yeah. And at the other end of the bar is Warren Clark. And I know a few things about Warren Clark. One, I know he's a Manchester man. Right. Two, I know he's a big fan of Manchester City. And as I'm a 
United fan, not a passionate yeah. fan, fan anymore. I've gone off football a bit, all the sort of commercial side of it, yeah. sporting for me. I, I love this. All I know about David, all I know about football is that uh, George Best, George Best, Europa. Yeah, I I carry love, on. I love the George Best era. <laughs> And I know that he's in a programme on television called D.L. and Pasco, which is what most people know him for, but yeah, yeah. that he was in Stanley Kubrick's, as I believe we're being encouraged to call him now. Yeah, with his codpiece and his Stanley Kubrick's. Yeah, he's, he's the droog. Yeah. He, he's, so I said to him, they poured me a pint, and I looked down the bar, and I said to him, you were in a Clockwork Orange. And he said, I bloody was. He said, and all everybody, all anybody ever says to me is, you're in Dalziel and Pasco. Yeah. They don't, they don't know to, <laughs> they don't know how to pronounce it. Yeah. And so we had a we had a good old chat, and he told me that the Durango, which was the the Adams probe in yeah. real life, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, he car. drove it, didn't he? He was actually behind the wheel. Well, oh. Like he said, with he a said, blue screen behind him, or whatever they did in those days. He yeah. said, "I spent a very uncomfortable day." They must have had to put some sort of Vaseline or something on it to get him in that car. Mind you, he was quite slim. Have well, you, he wasn't. He, he was a big sort of. He's bloke, a big one. Have you seen yeah. one in real life? At an Adam's Probe, one of those. The, the yeah, Durango was what? Yeah, the Lauren. Well, it, it was blue in the film, wasn't it? But it seems to be orange now for some reason. Yeah, it was at, orange. It was yeah. at um, it was at the the Kubrick um, exhibition at the Design Museum. Yeah, and me and my son went down, and they had it that you had to pay to get into the exhibition. But to be honest. We were more interested in the car, which was, although the exhibition was mind-blowing, one of the best. Yeah, a friend of mine sent me a picture. It was old, um, what's his name? Um, yeah, he sent me a picture of that car, and it, it actually was in the foyer there, yeah. Well, he said Jason that... Jason Dawes Lake sent me a picture. Yeah, wow. Like Diana Dawes is, certainly, obviously, sadly, no longer with us. Um, he died recently, just after his 50th birthday, but he was at the exhibition, and he, he sent me a picture over, yeah. Diana Dawes plays a significant role in British motorcycling culture. Do you know why? The blonde bombshell. Um... She owned the cellar in Windsor, which was a hangout for the Tunnock oh, Boys. Oh, was it? She owned the venue, did she? Yeah, yeah the Tunnock Boys and the Cafe Racers. Yeah. And subsequently, the sort of outlaw motorcycle culture, which developed out of that. And she was... Oh, the reason they hung out there was because it was the only place... She was very tolerant. Does it still quite... exist, the place, do you think? Obviously not, you know. I've, I've been on a pilgrimage to the cellar Have you? Go and Windsor. check it out. It's always nice, that, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a great big Sainsbury's or something built on it now. But, uh... I was, I was going to say, you, you were you were talking about Girl with a Pistol and the great yeah. footage of Tory Booth and Stanley Baker and the cars, and, and you see the cars in the street. And I, Sheffield, yeah. I, like you, I love those European films, British and European scene. films. I don't know anybody around here. I've never been to Sheffield. Is anyone around here familiar with Sheffield? But um, I'm sure you've got listeners from there. There's a lovely scene of a fantastic coffee bar with a lovely panoramic glass window that Monica sits in. And I thought I'd love to find out where that is, but I spoke to a friend, and he's from Sheffield, and he seemed to think it's a shopping centre's probably been plonked on it now. So, yeah. Yeah, things have moved on slightly. Well, I was going to say, <laughs> I, I love to watch um, the old Hammer... Or progress, apparently. The, the old Hammer movies from the British films from the yeah. 60s. And if they're, if they're a contemporary setting, you know, obviously, if it's, if it's, if it's set in yeah. the time of Dracula, there aren't too many... There isn't much mortar in interest, but there's <laughs> one called... It's an Italian production. I think it's an Italian-German production. And it's called The Living Dead at the Manchester Morgue. Oh, now, here's nice. the thing about morgues. Sounds we, quite restful, doesn't it? We don't have morgues in this country. <laughs> we have mortuaries. Ah. And the, the, the film was shot 
partly in England yeah. and partly in Italy. And it interchanges sequences. So the, the lead character, the opening sequence Very is... Very much like this, this film we've been on yeah, about with the pistol. Yeah, the opening sequence is fantastic. It's the lead character riding a brand new Norton Commando, which oh, I think wow. might be my favourite motorcycle of all time. Riding a... My dad had one. Riding a Norton Commando around Manchester city centre, and it's fascinating. Oh, you see how much the city is... He rides it around Piccadilly Gardens. You won't even talk about Psychomania today. Carry on. Yeah, Psychomania, Stevenage. Is it Stevenage, yeah? It's Stevenage in Psychomania. And you, you see it, and it was deliberately chosen because it was a new town. Everything was new, they wanted yeah. it. And it was near to the studio, so they could get to Stevenage. Right, and back. go around the Mulberry Bush. Where was that film? Was that Stevenage as well, wasn't it, was it? That was a new town, wasn't it? The funny thing about Barry that, Evans. Oh, no, Barry Evans, yeah. Do you know what I'm mixing? He sadly died, didn't he? He was a minicab driver. Yeah, he, he became that a minicab happened. driver. And had a, did, can we, we, we seem to be talking about a lot of people who sort of had an early death. <laughs> some, they they some, do fascinate me. I do reason. get more fascinated in the, the deceased blessing than, than the living. Well, I often mix up that movie, Here We Go Around the Mulberry Bush, yeah. with, and for obvious reasons, not because of the overlong title, but because of the theme, The Knack and How to Get It. Oh, yeah. With Ray Brooks, which Fantastic is... Fantastic thing, Rita Michael yeah. Crawford looking... In old, Ray Brooks made everything look so cool, didn't he? And Michael was so going around the twist of it all, wasn't Yeah, he? he looked so cool, but what I couldn't work out was that he was very obviously a mod. He was dressed as a mod in a mod style, yeah, mod haircut, mod too, sunglasses. Yeah. And riding a, a, a machine that was customised in the mod style with lots of spot lamps and wing mirrors, but was a motorcycle. Ah. And I think... I have to read, I well, from what I've heard, look out for that Ray time. Brooks was a lot happier riding a motorbike than he, he could get. He could get the hang of a scooter. So they just got a motorbike and customised it. They, they said, yeah, but we'll just have to mod up them. So yeah. they put loads of... If you, if you look, you th- if you see just a shot of him sat on it, kind of like a, your standard publicity photo. You think it's a scooter because you just see the spot lamps and the mirrors. Ah, well, they edited it. They sort of filmed it. But when you, well, when you see... They couldn't get a scooter. Some bizarre, well, he, he, yeah, yeah he, didn't, he didn't want to ride a scooter because, yeah. because as, as we know, they look great, but they're, they're pretty... They're, if you don't understand the limits of them in terms yeah. of braking, road it's, holding... It's funny talking about Michael Crawford because Michael Crawford was in The Wall Lover with Steve McQueen, yeah. which is obviously filmed in England. Shirley Anfield and Robert Wagner. And, and when you got um, Steve McQueen and Michael Crawford together in a scene, you think, it's the two Franks. You've got Frank Spencer and Frank Bullock. <laughs> <laughs> there they are, look. Pre- you know, about a decade later. Or Joel. Whatever, 68, wasn't it? Joel. Shirley Anfield. I know. I Come on. She, I don't see shit. Did she ever get married? Enough? Is she in... Um, Is it still not too late? Saturday night and Sunday morning. <laughs> uh, Saturday night and Sunday morning. She... Google it, to be with Albert Finney, he plays, he plays, a, and here's the thing, we were talking about Saturday night and Sunday morning the other day, because if you listen to shows like this, or if you watch Jay Leno's Garage, or you consume the sort of motoring media yeah. that people of our generation might be interested in, you can come away, if you watch the old Fred Dibner documentaries, you could come away thinking that the people who worked with their hands, which yes, is a great sort it. of... Yeah, which was a, she's so beautiful, unbelievable. So um, you could come away with the idea that everybody that worked at a lathe with their hands manufacturing parts for motor cars or, or whatever yeah. loved what they were doing. No. Most people hated it with a passion. Mm. 
The, you know, it's if you can work and make an, one part for a classic car on a lathe, I'm sure that's a lot of fun. A man on his lathe, yeah. If, as the character of Arthur Seaton in Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, brilliantly portrayed by Albert Finney, a man of Salford, one of the greatest oh, actors this country's ever produced, he was chained to that lathe, and he, it was piecework. Mm. He was paid for every basket of bicycle parts that he made on that lathe. And he hated every second of it. So we need to get away from this myth that people who worked in car factories making making cars... Most people who worked in car factories making sports cars or, or luxury cars could never never dream of owning one because they didn't earn enough no. money. It was just a factory. They could have been... And there's this big myth that's grown up around, oh, yeah, everybody who worked at Jaguar or Triumph or Norton or Ferrari or whatever. Yeah. No. I mean, I... I, I Went to Ferrari, as I know mm. you have. I've been about fourteen times. You've yeah. been you've been fourteen times. Yeah. Well, all I was saying was since the, but the, it was it was more fun in the early days because there was still sort of pinups on the wall and pictures of people's kids stuck on their toolboxes and swarf on the floor. I mean, it's very clinical now. Yeah, but the the guy I went on an official trip with the BBC. That was the first Court time program. I, I went to I went to Ferrari, yeah. and um, we dealt with somebody pretty senior in the press office there. And at the end of the day, having given us... There, there is no hospitality like Italian hospitality. Mm. There's, there's also no brush-off like an Italian brush-off. Four brush courses, off. all the same. Yeah, but I was going to say, there's no brush-off like an Italian <laughs> brush-off. We saw this guy who was straight from central casting, a cigar-chewing American who demanded to have a tour of the factory because he bought so many Ferraris and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. He, he just bowled up. They gave him the sort of brush off only it's Italians. Oh yeah, they were not interested no, in this man at all. Doesn't matter how many cars you've bought. No, or whatever, no interest no. whatsoever. It was, no. it was. Are you a proper person? You're obviously yeah. not. Please leave. Yeah. Would, would the would the lovely people for the BBC like to step forward? Yeah. At the end of the day, the guy who showed us round, he was so charming, multilingual, talking to people in the same conversation. Yeah, bit of French, bit of German, bit of Italian, bit of English. A very educated. Well dressed man got in a battered Fiat Uno to go on because that's really? how well that's how much he got paid. Yeah. You know, he was he was fairly senior, but it's still a factory making bits of machinery. They, yeah. You know, we're all very passionate all about what they do, but you know, the only people making the sort of money that could afford the cars are the people at the, the very top never of the flash cars. The very top of the they're also heavily taxed over there, aren't they? Yeah. They even made the boy turbo two litre instead of two and a half litre to try and get through a loophole. The same with the 208 Ferrari, wasn't it? Yeah, but Joel, it was the same as it was here. Yeah. And we, we were talking about that earlier. The last thing that the British government wanted British people to do in the 20 years after, well, at least the first 15 years after the war, was yeah. to buy a new car. Those new cars and motorbikes were for export, export or yeah, die. Sir Stafford drive, yeah. Cripps, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, the architect of Britain's Renaissance after yeah. the war. He got them together and he told them, and then Leonard Lord got all the grandees of the British motor yeah. uh, trade together in his house in Licky Hill, south of Birmingham. Great place, Licky Hill. Great name as well. Yeah. And, um, and he said, gentlemen, it is our patriotic duty. Yeah. We, we must save the nation. We are on our knees. We must export or die. Yeah. And that's what we did. And that's why when you all go... All the Ivy League young men all drove... MGs. When you, when you go Hobbit around the... MGs, Joel, yeah. you can go anywhere in the English-speaking world particularly. You can go to Australia, you can go to South Africa, you can go to Can Canada. You go to Vancouver, 
you know, there's like an MG specialist and there's a yeah, Triumph motorbike nice. shop and all this sort of stuff. We sent this stuff around the world. I, I, my missus, who, who I think you met, we were in Toronto yeah. and uh, she was working on a film there and she bought a Triumph TR7, not the car, the bike. Oh, she bought she? a Triumph TR7. And well, she, fancy a TR7. Well, she worked on this. Always wanted a car with tartan seats. Really? Carry on. Black, they did a black watch, didn't they? Did the black watch one, was it? Not the black death. Here's the thing, Joe. <laughs> I'll, t- I'll talk about that Triumph bike and then I'll come back to it. I yeah. rode that bike around the city for about three weeks while I was there because she'd bought this bike but was way too busy working to ride it. So I just rode it around the city. And the number of times that I, every time I, I parked it at the back of buildings, if I was going somewhere, I hid it because if I parked it in plain view, I could not get... Middle-aged men walking in the street go, yeah. Oh, my God, a, a TR7. Are, yeah. I, I wanted one of these. My dad had one of these. Blah, blah, blah. You couldn't... It was... I can't imagine any other vehicle that would have excited as much interest as that Triumph motorcycle. It's yeah. great-looking bike. We actually set, we set off to Niagara Falls on it. She had one day off, and so we set off from Toronto to get to Niagara Falls, and we got almost... The, I've never been to Niagara Falls because we got about 10 miles from Niagara Falls, and the bike developed a sort of... Something that I believe oh, to be God. just about terminal. Yeah. And she was saying, I can't believe that you, we're not going to see Niagara Falls. I said, well, okay, I think this motorcycle is about to stop going anywhere. It's funny, Niagara Falls. I watch the, I don't normally like game shows, but last night, the last question, they put four actresses up for a million, this was. A million? Go on. For the million. Let's um, see if I can get it, because I didn't see this. Go it on. It was um, four um, who's which actress is the same age as the Queen, their current Queen? Right, go on. God bless her. Um, Audrey Hepburn, Julie Andrews, um, Marilyn Monroe, and oh Christ, what was the other one? I can't remember. Uh, well, I'd say out of that list, it, so the Queen's what? The Queen's 92. Yeah. I would say if she was still with us, Audrey Hepburn. It was Marilyn Monroe. Damn it. <laughs> I was just thinking of Marilyn Monroe because she made a film at um, Niagara Falls, didn't she? Quite, quite, quite a cool old sort of early 50s film. It's funny how you would try if you've got Triumph cars, Triumph motorbikes and Triumph bras and I got on to Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> I don't know how we got there, but anyway. Triumph how did that happen? Triumph has... Because, you know, because <laughs> all you had to do was get of course. Did they it, make a Triumph bullet bra motorbike? They did. No, they didn't. Um, <laughs> in America, it was the Sears catalogue. In Britain, it was Marshalls or GUS, Great Universal Stores. Oh, Almost every ordinary home in Britain would have this catalogue. And I'm every out of sweat already. Can we oh, move yeah. on? Every every copy of that those catalogues that was in a home that contained te- like that contained contained teenage boys had three very well thumbed sections. It was just gold. You didn't need inspe- Inspector Morse to work out what teenage boys were interested in. I know. Because if you went to the bicycles page where they had rally arenas and Eddie Merck's ten speed little budgy ones. And rally choppers and Did stuff you have like a that. Rally, did you have a rally budgie? I didn't have a rally budgie. <laughs> I had Scaled down chopper, wasn't it, Matron? I had a I had a rally arena ten speed, which was kind of metallic oh, blue with Eddie Merrick's gloves on, I suppose. Yep. And then the other the other well page well thumb pages with the air rifle pages. Oh crikey. With the BSA and Webley and Scott one seven seven and two two air rifles. 
And then if you turn to the pages where the products of Miss Mary of Sweden and Playtex and try <laughs> try over us, you could just tell yeah, because yeah. they were a bit afraid of war yeah, compared yeah, to yeah. the because well no, I mean come on. Get hold of a copy and then just sort of peek <laughs> round the back of the big Reggie Perrin sofa and have a fun for five minutes through the pages. <laughs> I didn't get where you are today, Steve. What did Reggie Perrin drive? Go on. In the fall, arrive in Reginald Mark Free Cortina Estate. Yeah. Well, that's that. There's the thing. Um, most of the most of the television of that era. The, <laughs> yeah, the cars. The I I went past a factory. I'm trying to think where it My was. My father once caught me thinking. CJ says, I think he doesn't get the washing up done. <laughs> yeah, but most of the cars in those in those um, British TV shows, I'm thinking of like the, was it a princess in Terry and June? Terry's company yeah. car was an Austin princess. I hated I cars I like that. I, I, I used to think, uh, or oh, the, Vol- the Volvo Estate. You look at a princess now, though, what a great looking car. Yeah. They've got a bronze one down the mini factory down the road here in their museum. Oh, my God, what what a fantastic-looking car it was. That's it for this episode of Steve's Speed Shop. Don't forget, it's on every Wednesday, and there's a fantastic podcast, or you can use the Listen Again feature here on Fab Radio International.